Welcome to the Inspired Women Podcast. I am your host, Megan Hall, psychology grad student, spouse, mom, and advocate for change. On this podcast, I provide a space for women to share their stories. Warning, sometimes we chat about taboo topics and drop some F-bombs. Thank you for tuning in with me today and enjoy the episode. Hey everyone, Uh, just a quick trigger warning. We do briefly talk about suicide in this episode. So if you're not in a place where you want to hear any of that, feel free to skip this episode. If not, I hope you enjoy. It's, I mean, we all could use a little advocacy in our lives with everything going on. So it's a very important topic. Enjoy. Hey everyone, we have a return guest. I always love return guests. It really does make me so happy. So Cindy, uh, Cindy, I'm going to link your, it's Cindy. You like to be called Cindy, right? Yeah. I know Um, some. I answer to anything, but for, you know, we're informal here. (laughs) Yeah. I I know sometimes like you'll sign your email, Cindy. And I'm like, should I call her Cindy? Yeah. Call call me Cindy. (laughs) I don't sign my emails, Meg, because I don't like people calling me Meg. Only my Um, spouse and my sister call me Meg when, when my spouse introduces me to other people. And he's like, this is my wife, Meg. I'm like, my name's Megan. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Don't call me Meg. That's like for very important people can call me Meg, like three people. So anyways, uh, Cindy is the author of the upcoming book. And when you hear this, it's literally the day before launch uh, from changing diapers to changing the world. Why moms make great advocates and how to get started. Where can they get this book? Uh, You can get it right now on Amazon. Um, But if you do not like Amazon as of March 8th, (laughs) well, I know there's some feelings. There's lots of feelings about Amazon. Big big feelings. feelings. (laughs) But you can just go and and Google it on Amazon if you want. Or uh, as of March 8th, you should be able to go to any of your favorite local indie bookstores and and order it. They might not have it (laughs) sitting right there on the shelf. Uh, but you can order it there, or you can go to my website, which is www.changyet.com. And that is the only way that you can get an autographed copy. Ooh, I'll make sure to link that up too. So people can feel like very important people. Uh, (laughs) I know every time, like I want to read a book and I can get the author to sign it. I'm like, yes, let me do this. I will. Does does it encourage you to actually read the book instead of having it on your nightstand for months? Like me? (laughs) Well, right now I'm collecting all the banned books. Um, (laughs) All the what books? Oh, banned books. Yeah. So I have something that happened since we've talked last is the book banning. Yeah, I've been adding it to a list on Amazon. Um, and it says like books to buy. Uh, but I have a couple already that are waiting in the wings for me to read. One is Beloved, um, because a school in Virginia decided, no, we are not. And, you know, apparently there was a big thing when the governor of Virginia was running, he brought it up in ads. And I'm like, really? Wow. These are high schoolers that were reading it. So it's not even like elementary school. Anyways, I could go on and on about this. Imagine that being your platform, that 
<laughs> that is I what know. you want to be known for. <laughs> this is this is the hill I want to die on. This book that is like I think it won a Pulitzer Prize or something like that. This book that a Pulitzer Prize winner book. Um, I'm against it because. Yep. Yeah. Anyways, I could go on about this. Any well, nobody's so, banned my book yet, but um, <laughs> if it happens, I'll let people know so they can swoop it up. Well, like I was looking at Moss. I think it's called Moss. I think that's how you pronounce it. Um, I never read it, but it's like a graphic novel about mice that has to do with the Holocaust. And yeah, uh, yeah. Right now, it ha- is back ordered on Amazon for like a month. <laughs> It's kind of beautiful. <laughs> I know it is very beautiful. And and a lot of these books are becoming like at the top of the New York Times bestseller list because they've been banned and everybody's like, let me buy it. Why is it banned? I, I have heard of authors. I mean, now that I'm in kind of the writing community and I, you know, have a lot of writer friends on Twitter and stuff, I've come across authors that get very excited when their book is banned because it gives it a higher profile than it would have otherwise. Yeah. I mean, if I ever write a book, I hope it gets banned too. Uh, not, I feel like you're doing doing it right. If it's like a personal biography or a fiction novel and like <laughs> get banned. Well, here's the thing. When you write something called from changing diapers to changing the world, you, you would be shocked if it were taught in a high school. So I don't right? think it's going to be banned from high schools. <laughs> probably not my target audience. Well, finish reading your bio because we could talk forever. Um, (laughs) No, it's not your fault. I'm like, here, let me add this little tidbit. Uh, So Cindy is a nonpartisan activist, which is also why your book wouldn't get banned, nonpartisanship, (laughs) Um, (laughs) working across a variety of issues. Levine coaches volunteers of all ages to build productive relationships with members of Congress. She advocated side-by-side with her two children from their toddler to teen years and crafted a new approach to advocacy based on her strengths as a mother. She is currently a volunteer with Results, The One Campaign, Bread for the World, Care, Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense in America, Moms Rising, and the UN Foundation's Shot at Life campaign, which is so important right now Um, because, you know... COVID. (laughs) We were just thinking like the last time that I was on this podcast, we were in the middle of the Delta surge and that seemed like such a big deal, didn't it? At the time. (laughs) And now here we are past January, 2020, or excuse me, 2022, where Omicron took over. I was just reading a statistic about that, that they were saying in, it was just five weeks that Omicron went from being identified in uh, Southern Africa to becoming the dominant strain uh, in the U.S. the week before Christmas. It was only five weeks. It's like, whoosh. It went real fast, super contagious, even for uh, vaccinated individuals. I got COVID. People probably know that. However, it was mild for us. Um, so that was good. So the vaccine did its part. I mean, now we can't even say anymore that vaccines stop you from getting it in the very beginning with the alpha, like the alpha, the, the OG COVID virus, (laughs) OG virus. It was very effective at you not being able to catch it or spread it or anything like that. And each new variant is like, no, I'm going to up my game. 
And uh, this is all gonna like evade some immunities we have from catching it, which is very sad. And maybe if we vaccinated more of the world, uh, we could stop mutating this thing. <laughs> yep. You know, I wanna say something to you, Vegan, about that, that I, I knew so many people who, who contracted it, they were, they were trying to be so careful. And I wanna say it to you and to anybody else that's listening that, that was trying to be careful and got it anyway it's just not your fault. Mm-hmm. It's not your fault. This is the, it went another step. And now what we're talking about is policy things. It's not, um, your individual fault. If you were doing the best thing you could, um, for yourself and, and you caught it because you had to go to the grocery store or you yeah, caught it yeah. because you're the mom and you're the caregiver and you had to, um, be taking care of your parents and your kids at the same time. Or you have to work. Yeah. Oh, you have to work. You have to put food on the table. (laughs) I was just reading a thread um, yesterday about this um, from this immune immunocompromised individual. And she was trying to explain like not all of us who are immunocompromised or um, disabled are actually able to get disability. So we actually have to go to work. And even though we might be wearing an N95 or KN95 mask, the longer you're around an unmasked individual that is COVID positive, even with those masks, the more likely you are to get it. And she was talking about how she's so worried at work that like, if she got it, she could die. Like, and nobody at work wears a mask for her, like for her. Um, and I'm thinking about like the Supreme court where the, I think Clarence Thomas is the one that's the head of the Supreme court asked all the justices to wear a mask. Cause Dr. Or Dr. Uh, Sonomayor, um, actually is high risk and they didn't want her to get anything. And one of the justices is like, no, no, I'm not going to like, oh. you know, I don't care what your stances on masks are, but there are people out there who literally could die by getting this. And like, it doesn't hurt in public or when you're around a lot of people who aren't choosing to be maskless to put on a mask. Like you're in the grocery store for what, 30 minutes, maybe an hour. Like what, what does a mask hurt you like to do that? And so it was like really heartbreaking to read this thread from this individuals. Like people don't realize like, I might die if I get COVID. And she's like, it won't be mild for me. And she's like, I can't isolate in my house because I have to get groceries. I have to work. I have to go out. And I think like, I am like, oh, thank goodness. Mine was mild. The vaccine did its part. But she's like, for me, the vaccine isn't going to do a whole lot because I don't have the immune system. And so that sort of thing, it just breaks my freaking heart, like to see all of this going on and And so, yes, it's not people's faults, but we do need to take precautions to help protect individuals who don't have a choice about going out. Like they can't just stay in their house. They actually have things to do. Like, I'm not talking about at a restaurant where we know everybody's not wearing a mask. Like, I'm not saying, please eat your restaurant food with a mask on. (laughs) I'm talking about like in the grocery store or at work. Yeah. And and they all clarify, you know, saying if you're doing all that you can and it happens anyway, I I wasn't talking about it. If you're a Canadian trucker, that's like running across (laughs) the continent (laughs) saying that we shouldn't do these things. Ontario had to call, like, I think it's Ontario or is it Ottawa? 
um, had to declare a state of emergency because like it has gotten so like off the chain with these truckers and it's not just truckers, all these protesters and stuff. And I'm like, right. Oh, so Canada's supposed to be nice. <laughs> this is one of the reasons that I, I called you back to, to be on the show. Cause I felt like even in the time since we've talked last there are so many crazy things that have happening. Like we just talked about COVID getting more dangerous, um, you know, the truckers and the banned books. And, and I feel like, well, and then just putting that much more pandemic life on top of us. Mm-hmm. I, I wanted to come back because I feel like there are more moms feeling even more desperate. Yeah. And um, this conversation that we we're starting to have about individual uh, decisions versus you know, policy and things like that. Um, This is really important. And a lot of moms are just feeling very desperate. And like, if it's elevated to the point that it's only global policy is going, is going to save us, how is one little person going to change that? And that's pretty much what I wrote my book about. So I wanted to, you know, come on here and have a conversation with you about some of those Uh, feelings that we have about moms and some of the vulnerabilities that we're feeling and how we can change that into empowerment and feeling better about ourselves and, and what we're doing for our families. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, I used to live in Virginia, so I'm going to share two different parts in Virginia. Some of my friends, uh, sued the governor because the governor, um, said there needs to be mask choice that schools couldn't force children to wear masks and um, they would be in trouble if they forced them. And a whole bunch of parents sued the governor and won. I'm pretty sure they won. Yeah, mm-hmm. I read an article. They won because um, they were like, we need to protect our kids, right? And here in Connecticut, the governor just announced he's going to repeal the school mask mandate on February 15th, I want to say. So we're going to have like a similar issue. It's going to be left up to the individual schools. And you're going to have some schools that have like school boards that are like, no, we're overturning this. We're not going to to do this anymore. And and that's going to be where like parents are going to want to get involved and going to want to advocate for their kids. So I think what you're going to share, that's just one example of things Mm -hmm. where parents are going to need to step up because of these things. And so I feel like your voice and your perspective is really important as we approach all of these different, you know, things that are going on because school, school is and what's taught in, taught in school and what's going on in school is, beca- is becoming very like politicized and partisan. And I feel like as we go forward, this like things are just going to keep happening where we're going to have to speak up more. Right. And some of the common threads that I often hear when there are victories, like you were talking about, and by the way, my state of Missouri is facing about the same thing. <laughs> it's not coming right. from the government, but I believe it's our attorney general that's suing schools, but, um, uh, the common thread when you do have, uh, victories and keeping, uh, kids and communities safe are always people working together. Mm-hmm. And well, I could say that <laughs> it's also a common thread when it doesn't work because it meant that there were people working together on the other side. So, yeah, that's true. Um, and that's like another thing that I like to tell people when they're wondering, you know, why should I do anything? Why should you be engaged at all? Is if you're not taking some sort of action, I guarantee you there's somebody 
who's taking action mm-hmm. to do the thing that you don't want. Yeah. Um, so even just standing aside is sometimes that. And I don't say that to, you know, put this burden on an already um, troubled Overwhelmed. Moms. Yeah. <laughs> Overwhelmed moms. What I'm trying to say is uh, let's find strength in each other and uh, find ways to work together to do these things. Because it is true that some people go, wow, you know, Cindy got letter to the letter to the editor in and she got this op-ed piece in and she talked to this member of Congress. Well, yeah, I did, but I didn't do any of that alone. I'm always mm-hmm. working with other teams of moms, other teams of um, activists. And that's the kind of thing that gets done. That being said, I think that there are some things that make moms in particular really great advocates, even though they may not know it. Like the skills that we use raising our little ones just instill certain qualities in us that we have in common. And I will say that I'm going to make some gross generalities here. Um, (laughs) For instance, when I say that, um, you know, moms are responsible and organized, you're always going to find a mom that is not responsible. (laughs) Like she's, you're going to find her and you can hold her up to me. And I'd be like, oh, I was her actually one time. Yeah. But in general, uh, that that's one reason I throw out there is that we are the people, um, throughout a lot of the world, I think uh, Bill and Melinda Gates actually wrote about this in their annual letter one time. They had like a lot of statistics about how moms are um, in the vast majority of countries, they're the ones that are keeping the families together and and things like that. And on a micro level, I was the one packing the diaper bag. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And when my husband, who is a great guy, when he packed the diaper bag, they probably didn't have everything they needed. <laughs> even the kids even now complain that there's not enough stuff in my dad or when my, ugh, in their dad's car. Um, like my glove compartment is all full of you know all the band aids and the antibiotics and the tire gauge and the uh, hand sanitizer. Yeah. <laughs> like, there's nothing in dad's car. <laughs> Somewhere out of bloody nose. <laughs> so you know we that kind of thing can translate into being a very prepared um, activist looking, we are chess players. And now I'm going to say, usually I'm talking about toddler things, but you and I both have 18 year olds. Mm-hmm. And when you parent teens, you need to be a chess player, three, four, five moves ahead. <laughs> What's going on? And the same thing can be said for advocacy. You know, if you're do- taking this action, and uh, they're going to sign on to this letter. What's the next thing you're going to ask them? You know, mm-hmm. the ability to think ahead and do those things and feel responsible for your community and feel engaged. So that's that's one of the reasons that I um, think about that. I see you nodding a lot about the chess player kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and mm-hmm. you're a mom of four. So you were probably always moving. Yeah. And, and like, nobody prepares you for having an adult child. They don't tell you how hard it is. And, you know, you think like, ah, oh, when the kids like an, an, still in my head, I don't think 18 year olds are adults, but according to the federal government, they are. And <laughs> that's a whole other thing. I'm like, 
pick a lane, y'all pick a lane. Um, but yeah, having an adult child who's out on their own, nobody prepares you for how difficult that is because you feel helpless. I was just talking to my therapist about this yesterday. You feel helpless because there's nothing you can do. They have to figure it out on their own. You can give them guidance, but they might ignore you. Um, but you feel really helpless as a parent um, when your child becomes an adult and nobody, nobody prepares you for that. So it's a whole new like level of chess you're playing. You're like, you don't want to like turn them off, like by, you know, harping on them too much, but you also want to let them know, like, these are options you have. And my spouse is like, stop telling her she can move back in with us. Not because (laughs) I don't want her to, but because like you keep, if I keep telling her, she's not going to want to do it because I said she should. And so like, it's, it's, it is, it's still a game of chess, the dull children. And also what you just mentioned is, has a corollary in um, Congress too, that you're talking about, um, uh, messaging, like don't harp on them so much that they don't want to do this. Well, you, you do still want to harp on your members of Congress and you do want to still want to do the kids. But, uh, I think that a nuanced advocate who is doing relationship-based advocacy, which is what I do, Mm. um, is, um, figuring out how does this person need to hear this message in the moment? And, um, you know, it's, Sometimes we get really angry. We talked about in the last podcast about talking about how it's, it's actually easier to get angry and vilify people. Yeah. And it's harder to view them as humans, just like it's hard for us to view our older kids as emerging adults. Yeah. <laughs> but we have to be, um, change our views. We want to be persistent, but um, you know, how, in what form should our nagging take? Mm-hmm. Um, and when I, write letters to the editor, a lot of times I'm thanking them for something, anything that they did, and then taking the next pivot to say, hey, thanks for, you know, doing this thing. Maybe they, um, you know how they're like photo ops when somebody is uh, helping out at a soup kitchen or something like that at Christmas. Okay. That that might've been like kind of small, but thank you for doing this. And you know what else that you can do um, is you can sign this nutrition bill that will um, help feed hungry Americans or something like that. Or if they did that, it's like, thank you for doing that. And you know what else you can do? (laughs) You can feed people in other countries or um, there's like a million ways to be creative um, about it. And also knowing when the time is like uh, I'll use an example of right now, a lot of people aren't aware of the, the child tax credit if you've never had to use it. Oh, um, I, I got it because I have two children in my house that live with me. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, it, um, because the threshold is, I mean, not super high, but it is quite high, like on who qualifies for it. Um, it does. I mean, I we, I would classify us as middle-class family, but we still qualify with two children to get it. Now it's not as high as some other families do. And I'm not one of those people that's like, well, I should get higher. I'm actually one of those people is like, I don't care if I got it at all. Thank you for giving it to me. That's great. I appreciate that. But I'm more concerned with how can things help people who really need the help? Like, you know, and I don't mean that in a, in a like in an offensive way. I mean, there are families out there struggling. They can't afford uh, 
childcare, they can't, uh, they're living paycheck to paycheck. They may have to choose between them eating or their children eating. I was there when I was on welfare. Sometimes you don't get enough help um, from the state to be able to not make that choice. Right. And so to me, I'm like, well, that was very important because they actually said it lifted some families out of poverty. Yeah. Um, you, you are absolutely correct in that because uh, last year there were uh, expansions to the child tax credit and it kept over 3 million children out of poverty every month. Um, I believe from July into July to September. And then um, in, excuse me, I meant December, the end of the year, <laughs> that month that happens at the end of the year, from okay. July to December. And at the end of the year, um, those um, benefits were, were not extended. Mm-hmm. And so um, what I'm, what I was trying to get at is um, here we have something that's sort of little known in the world, but if it matters to your family um, quite a bit, and if families like yours matter to families like mine, then we owe it to these kids to stand up and say that we need this um, put back. They, they were supposed to go back in the build back better plan. <laughs> get there. Yeah. So we're still talking about it. And I'm like writing media asking uh, our representatives and our senators to find a new way to extend that because um, all to low uh, all low income children and get those monthly payments reinstated like a standalone uh, bill like yeah. by itself yeah whatever they need to do but in this case you know you kind of laughed when you talked about build back better because that has been talked about forever and it's failed and case, spectacularly <laughs> yeah um i I start those letters to the editor by calling them out and saying, you know, I wish this had happened, but my senators, Roy Blunt and Josh Hawley, let (laughs) that go by. And and I write in different states, I call them out by name. And this is like another mother tactic, right? (laughs) You know, use their names and tell them when they did something wrong. Um, You know, at the same time, I've, I've built up a lot of capital in those offices that they know that I am not, um, somebody who's coming after them without reason. I always have sound reasons and statistics backing up what I say, but they also know that I'm going to call them out in the press when they don't do something um, or when they do something uh, detrimental to our kids. Yeah. And this is a nonpartisan issue. I don't know why it's become so partisan about these child tax credits because both people of all political uh, beliefs live in poverty. I actually read a Pew research. I think it was Pew research. If I can find it, I'll link it up where they did research on people living in poverty. And it was a pretty 50, 50 split on, uh, where people like identified what party they identified with and them living in poverty or, um, being recipients of any sort of welfare, like whether it's HUD or snap or whatever. And it was a pretty 50, 50 split of uh, what, you know, parties they, like uh, just Democrat and Republican, they, I think they did add independent in there, but when you're comparing Democrat and Republican, it, it was pretty close. Like, so it is a nonpartisan issue right yep. there. Yep, they can talk about it in a partisan way, but the, the way it hits people who are actually living through it. And um, 
it's something else I wanted to say that this, this is what I love about talking about you is like I, I mentioned the CTC, which is the child tax credit, which is kind of obscure to some people. And Megan, you're always like, oh, yeah, I know what that is. <laughs> and, <laughs> I know. And then, yeah. And then you offer, you know, a way that it affected your life. And, you know, like I bet you have stories about how you used it. And you also talked about how you didn't need it at some um, points. But Moms are really good at explaining things. And uh, I have a colleague named Yolanda Gordon that uh, I met through uh, results. And she uh, lived in poverty for many years. She she worked three jobs at one point and um, you know, she had kids she was raising. She's a really amazing activist. She's um, been in the military. Nobody could ever accuse her of not you know, living up to, you know, our, our country's needs. And, um, you know, she goes in there and she'll have these conversations. They'll be like, well, yeah, we don't need to extend those uh, nutrition benefits because, you know, we have WIC. And she told me a story that's in the book. that's like, okay, yeah. But have you seen the list of things that are in WIC? It's a supplemental list. This yes, is not I've been on WIC. Mm-hmm. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Yeah. So for the people that don't know, Yolanda educated me on this by saying that she said that she would go home and compile this list for the congressional aide she was talking to. And was like, here's what it is. Can you live on this? Nope. We need SNAP, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance um, Program, the food stamps that have the flexibility to provide the nutrition that that we need. And, mm-hmm. you know, she just sat down and talked to in a very plain spoken way. And I've thrown around some acronyms already today, but those aren't the most important part. The, the most important parts are people talking about how do I use these programs? How do they affect me? And I always say that if you can explain these things, like you would explain it to a second grader, then you're probably at the right level for a member of Congress. And I'm not being snarky and I'm not saying they're not smart. Right. It's, they have a million things to do and they don't even all catch, um, keep up with the acronyms and stuff. So it's like, tell them like you'd tell your kids. Yeah, no, that's what I try to do with mental health. When I, I am talking about it, like plainly explain like what the issues are and, you know, um, future Megan goals are to be able to get things changed because, uh, three, and, and, and people may have heard me talk about this, the three barriers to mm-hmm. mental health access are accessibility, affordability, and stigma. And while we have so many programs that um, have been implemented, maybe not for a prolonged period of time, but here and there, um, to combat stigma, which some of it is is very problematic because it's not implemented the right way. They didn't ask, you know, professionals, people who actually research this stuff. Anyways, um, <laughs> there's not enough to um, actually draw attention and and help with the accessibility and affordability. So when I was on Medicaid, and this was a long time ago, this may have changed this, holy crap, this was like 15 plus years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, I got a DWI, I'm not proud of this, okay? Um, And they make you when you do the, like the um, classes and stuff that they make you take to get your license back. They have you, or at least they did in New York State, meet with 
a mental health professional to deem whether you have an alcohol or alcohol or substance abuse problem. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I, I sat down and I met with her and she said, Megan, I don't think you have an alcohol abuse problem. I think you are a social drinker. She's like, but I do think you have some mental health things that you need to work through for what we said. And I was like, okay. She's like, I I really want to get you in. She's like, but I'm going to be honest. Um, not a lot of people accept Medicaid and there is a six month wait for you to get in Ooh. with an office that does. Now, again, this is 15 years ago and I really hope they have improved things. But when she said that to me and I'm like, why would I go and get help if I have to wait six months to get help? Right. Like, right. you know, I didn't know at the time I had bipolar disorder. That was not something that I was aware of. Um, I just thought I, I had been diagnosed with depression. So I'm like, I just have depression. It'll pass. We're good, whatever. I'm not waiting six months. So if I'm thinking that there are other people thinking that because yeah. they can't access it and maybe you have Medicaid. So you can like Medicaid will cover it, but not a lot of people take Medicaid because it does not pay well. Uh-huh. <laughs> So how do we get, you know, how do we advocate for more accessibility, more affordability, and also stigma reduction campaigns? And that's something that future, Megan, (laughs) when I get through and I can say, hey, I am an expert because I have all this backing me up. Uh, So Mm -hmm. let's advocate to change these things. But it is like things like that, that you, the whole point that I went on this tirade is I can explain it very plainly on why these things are a problem. And I have experience. I have a story that I can share on why I didn't seek help. Now that was the only person at the time that told me to seek help. And I'm like, what does she know? I'm not waiting six months. (laughs) But now I look back and I was like, had I been able to get in, in like two weeks, my whole life could have been different. I could wow. have got the proper diagnosis. I could have got the proper treatment and not struggled so bad for over a decade after that. And, you know, so important. And, and what you're talking about on every level is like to be able to break that down. We all have a story. We all have an experience that can contribute to us telling these people that are in charge, whether it's a local or a federal level, this is my experience this is in plain language, why this is important and how we can address it. Uh, and everybody has a story like that. Yeah, exactly. And, and nobody knows mm, you are an expert in your own story. Yep. And that is one of the things that is going to make you very powerful as an advocate. And I say you looking at you, Megan, but also (laughs) everybody listening to this, that, um, you know, sometimes when I first started doing this, I'd be thinking, ah, what am I doing here? I'm not an expert, but I'm an expert in how I think and what, how I feel and what I have experienced in my life. And that is what brings me power mm-hmm. and um, something that is a little counterintuitive is uh, that I think that when I, when we're feeling as moms, a little out of control, a little vulnerable and overwhelmed and things like that. There's power in that too. Um, that is how, that is where I was when I first found advocacy and somebody came to me and asked me to, um, be involved. And I remember going to my first meeting and, um, I was retelling a story of somebody that I had, uh, talked to at the conference that prepared us for going to the meetings. Um, it was a story about somebody who, uh, this is about 15 years ago, so I'm not gonna remember the details, yeah, of it, I know. But, 
but uh, it was a story about a mother who had uh, a bunch of kids and was feeling very desperate about how she was going to take care of them. And she was, um, uh, I'm going to skip to the end of the story just to let you off the hook a little bit. <laughs> not how I do it in a lobby meeting, but um, uh, this is a story about microfinance. And that's what the aide would have known going in the event I was going to talk about microfinance where people get just little loans to help them um, you know, like less than twenty dollars to um, help them start a, a small business in a developing country. Um, but she had a number of kids, and she her feeling was so desperate that she was going to take her little bit of money and go to the market and buy rat poison, and they would all commit suicide. Oh my god! Yeah, and it just so happened that when she went to the market, she saw somebody there who used to be more destitute than she was. But here was this woman who was looking really great. And she's like, what happened to you? And the woman said, I was got involved in this program, these microfinance loans and uh, things turned around for her. But when I was telling the story, I got so swept up that I was teary and the congressional aide that I was talking to, uh, she also got very emotional. <laughs> and our, my other lobby partners were sitting there going, what, what is happening here? And, you know, um, I was, my emotions were lending power to the story and mm -hmm. made a human connection with that Senate aide. And um, it, it had a very good outcome for uh, whatever we were asking for that particular day. And, you know, I walked away thinking that, you know, sometimes as women, we think, oh, I didn't keep control of my emotions. I let somebody see me cry. I, this is how I felt about it anyway, at the time, it's like, Oh, I didn't do a good job in there. I, I failed that totally um, was not a good meeting. And now I look back on it. I wish I could talk to past Cindy. You're always talking about future Megan. I wish I could talk to past Cindy and say, no, that's exactly what you were supposed to be doing is finding the humanity in yourself mm -hmm. to connect with the humanity and the aid to build that relationship. And if that means that some, tears come out. It only means that you're care, you care. And the, the big secret in all of this is when you're a volunteer advocate, your job is not to be an expert. Your job is just to stand up and say that you care. You're mm -hmm. a voter, you're a constituent, you care. And this is why. So, yeah. Well, I thought about that story in a while. <laughs> one of the things that allows individuals to remove themselves and not be invested in things is dehumanizing the problem, dehumanizing mm. the people that are involved in it, right? Like othering my, my interest is social psychology. And we talk about in groups and out groups and othering people. And, you know, in if you're in the out group, then the people see you as the quote unquote enemy, right. And they're able to other you and dehumanize you and, and things like that. And it's when we bring, bring it to the forefront and humanize people, right. When, when I'm writing my papers on mental health stigma, which is my, my interest, I say st the statistics show that one in five U S adults every year live with a mental illness, which now brings to your forefront when you're thinking about it. Now you're like, wait, I know people. I probably know a lot of people, even if you are not aware and they have not come out to you as living with a mental illness by, by statistical standards, we all know a lot of people mm -hmm. that are living with a mental illness. And so that human, they may not know it themselves. Right. And that humanizes 
that problem because now you're like, I know people, like people in my life. And now they're thinking like, oh, this problem is relevant to me because I know people. And now like it changes the whole tact of this, right? When you can humanize people and show like, this is a problem. And this is probably a problem for people, you know, or people that, you know, care about, right? Like we're not that far removed from any problem out there. Like we know somebody or we know somebody who knows somebody that this problem is relevant to. And when you humanize and you bring it to the forefront, like that congressional aide maybe has children. And so now this person's thinking like, what if I was in that situation? How desperate do you have to be to like think that? And now it's humanized the problem. And now you can get further with, you know, advocating for it than you could if they do not see it as like they dehumanize the problem or the people. Yeah. I, I, when you say that, it reminded me of an aide that I talked to that did not have children and he was dressed so nicely. And I actually do tell this story in the book. He was dressed so nicely. He was so spiffy. And I don't know, he just seemed like really far from me. And we were talking about, you know, getting to know each other and stuff. I always try to do it at the beginning of a lobby meeting. And I was like, how am I going to ever connect with this guy? (laughs) Who just, he just seemed like a kind of high powered sort of individual. And I'm just me, I'm just a mom showing up. And um, we were talking about uh, infectious diseases as one does. Um, Even before COVID, we were talking about measles in particular. And Mm. do you remember when there was a measles outbreak in In uh, Disneyland? Yeah. Yeah. So I had written an op-ed, I used to work at Disneyland and I had written an op-ed about that, that did a little bit of a mental experiment and I'm not going to have the details. You'll have to read the book for that, I guess. <laughs> but the book. It was essentially, I had done some calculations saying um, if there were no measles vaccines, um, if you had an unvaccinated population, that disease was so, um, uh, was so infectious, kind of like Omicron, um, <laughs> But that if, if you, and uh, measles is not, is, is airborne and by uh, you can get it by touch, uh, you know, touching something that somebody else had licked, which often happens at Disney, whether you want to know it or not. Right. (laughs) um, I was talking about the Dumbo ride and how many people cycle through there. And if patient zero through went through there, how many people would also touch the Dumbo button? Cause you have to press it to fly. And I was talking about how many people would be walking around that would affect other people. And he just went, ew. (laughs) And in that moment, I knew that I connected him and it was real to him. I thought, well, you you do what you got to do and you tell the stories that you have to tell. Yes. I mean, one day my representative uh, signed on to that bill. Um, Apparently that made an impression. (laughs) So, I mean, yeah. you know, at the beginning of COVID, like so many of us were like disinfecting our groceries because they didn't know like if like it could live long enough on I like surfaces. <laughs> sure. Me too. Yeah, me too. Because we didn't know if it would live long enough on surfaces for like if we touched our groceries and an infected person as, and then we touched our, like our mouth or our hands or whatever, then we would get it. Now we know that's 
not really a thing, but we didn't, we know. Just didn't know what we were dealing with because exactly. I've advocated about on Ebola and measles and just all kinds of nasty stuff. So I didn't know what it was. <laughs> yeah, no. And, and, and that's viruses all work differently. You're telling us right now that measles literally can live on surfaces. So, and we all know, like as much as they're like, wash your hands, you touch your face after you touch things. You're not sanitizing your hands every five seconds. Or I mean, at least I'm not like, <laughs> so I could easily touch my face after touching something. If I wasn't unvaccinated for measles and I had a titer done like a couple years ago and I'm very immune because um, <laughs> it shows you like the base level of what your numbers have to be to be like, to be immune to whatever it is. Mine were quite a bit above that. So I'm like, cool. My chicken pox off the chain. I'm like, that's because I had them. <laughs> now I don't want people to get them. It also can kill people, especially babies and elderly people. Um, but I mean, I'm saying when I was a kid, I had them. So I have a very strong immune response to chicken pox. <laughs> yep. You know, it's, it's, uh, and when it comes to this kind of thing, when I go in as a shot at life volunteer, um, when I'm talking about vaccine, and by the way, our conferences um, will have just happened uh, when this um, podcast airs. Um, I'm always going in with like the most recent information that we have, the most recent science. And, and sometimes the science changes, but that only means that I should be in contact with my members of Congress a lot, like mm -hmm. more than once a year. Um, so when something changes, um, all the, the congressional aides that I cover, like I'm in different groups, so I'm a point person for different things. Um, when I'm working with somebody, they, they know what I'm, who I am and what I'm writing about. And I'll put it right up there on the top. It's like, you know, new information on X or Y, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I just, do it in a really plain spoken way and keep in touch often. And that helps them eventually, even if they're opposed to other things that I um, might lobby for, um, they appreciate that I make their job easier by presenting them with information. And um, yeah, these are all things that I think that, I mean, this is not to say that only moms can be advocates, but right. I have, messaged my book and my talks about that because I think that there's a lot of conditioning that tells us that, um, you know, uh, your hands are full and you should probably just, you know, watch the kids and that's all you can do at this point. And certainly when I was, before I got involved in the advocacy, I was sort of feeding that line to myself. Mm -hmm. um, but then I realized that this was um, something that I could do that made me feel more powerful because I was protecting my family and made me feel like more of a part of the world than somebody set aside and shelved until my kids would be in college. Yeah. And I talked to a number of moms about that, that like sometimes their kids go to college and they're like, uh, there was a woman that told me, I felt like I was on a hamster wheel for 18 years and now I'm able to do something. I'm like, oh my gosh, I wish I'd written this book before then. <laughs> you could have had it and gotten off. <laughs> well, as we wrap up the podcast today, because as you know, uh, the time does go by very It fast. does. And because, uh, you know, we're just chatting like old friends. Um, what would you like to leave the inspired women audience with? Uh, 
last time I said you're more powerful than you think you are, but I think I'm going to like throw something else in there, which is whoever's listening to this, we need you. We need you in this fight. And sometimes that's a really powerful thing for when somebody says that to me, because I'm feeling like, oh, I'll just set this one out or something. But we really need all these voices there. Are, we've talked about infectious diseases. We've talked about mental health, but there's other things. There's climate change. There's <laughs> the book banning we alluded to. There's your local mask mandates. There's, um, you know, air quality and um, housing issues. The, the people that are doing it are doing a great job, but we, we need more help and we need you in the mix because whoever you are, you have a unique voice that you can say things that I can't say and you're probably a different state. So you have um, access to members of Congress that I don't. And so um, I need you as a partner. Well, that's it. That's it. <laughs> we are done. It's over. <laughs> it is. Um, well, thank you again for coming on. You know, when something changes, maybe next time we talk, it'll be like a new variant. Hopefully, not. <laughs> hopefully, it'll be one that is so contagious but so very mild that we all just, um, you know, get the sniffles and it's fine. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? It would be nice. Uh, somebody explained it to me like this viruses want to replicate, so they don't want to kill you immediately. But I'm like, oh, but they could want to kill us like after they get passed on to somebody else. That doesn't sound Later. fun to me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Please don't tell me that. But yeah, the uh, when we get a variant, they said it is not because it is so deadly that you're going to die like right away because they need to be able to live to be passed on. That's their whole job is to replicate like viruses that that's their whole job. And I'm like, oh, sounds very so science fiction-y, doesn't it? Very science. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you. Thank you for being a part of the Inspired Women audience. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating review. And don't forget to share this out with somebody who could use some inspiration today. Tag us at Inspired Women Podcast, both on Facebook and Instagram. Have a great day.